0: Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. Well, the first staff have been hired and they've even started scouting for premises. But how are they going to pay for this thing? Well, the licence fee, of course. They decided it earlier in the summer. But, oh dear, Christmas 1922. Wreath hasn't even started yet and already the licence fee just isn't working. Are listeners cheating? Hmm... This time, as the Broadcasting Committee, who set things up in the first place, become the first BBC board of directors, money looks to be running out before it's even started coming in. Confused? Well, it's all down to experimental licences and far too many of them. All will become clear, plus the return of broadcaster, radio priest and settler, Reverend Cindy Kent, with tales of, whisper it, commercial radio. It's okay. we're here for them too, because we're nothing to do with the BBC. We celebrate the history of all broadcasting, here on the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling.
1: This is London Calling
0: hello hello hope you're doing well it's paul carenza here you there quick one from me this time partly because it's summer holidays partly because i had a whole next episode set to go and then as you know this podcast is built from me reading about 30 books at once devouring the bbc origin story and then regurgitating it here via a microphone plus rare clips and we've also got the return of cindy kent this episode we'll hear from her throughout Well, on this occasion, I've been reading some books and discovered some issues with the license fee that came in surprisingly early, like before Reith even got his feet under the desk. So I thought we'd explore and encounter some of those license fee problems that the Broadcasting Committee were discovering in December 1922.
2: At the outset of official or BBC broadcasting, listeners couldn't pay their license fees unless these sets were stamped type approved by PMG
0: future chief engineer and radio pioneer Peter Eckersley.
2: Tens of thousands of them however constructed their own sets and so could not even if they wanted to subscribe to the BBC revenue.
0: More of that story shortly but before we get to it news yes news just in I want to whiz you forward to 2022 when the BBC of course will turn 100. And then I'm going to whiz you back to May 1922, when the BBC was minus six months old. Looking ahead, though, here's a thing. Now, you must have spotted by now that 2022, that's next year as I record this, will be the centenary of official British broadcasting. Happy birthday, Beeb. So we need a celebration. Well, I am nothing to do with the BBC. I do stress that each episode, this podcast is nothing to do with them, you hear? I've been pitching things to Auntie Beeb, documentaries, dramas, essentially this podcast, but in a different form, on the BBC. No joy just yet, but I'm sure the BBC will be celebrating mightily, just, you know, without me. Sniff, it's fine. I'm doing this without them. They can have a party without me, I'm sure. Although, you know, if any listeners have any sway, help us make that happen, yeah? I think a historical soap would be quite nice. Anyway, whatever the Beeb does for their 100th birthday... We can still meet. Yes, us as a podcast audience in person. Hmm. So while this won't be an official British Broadcasting Century meetup, we've got a plan to piggyback onto something that Tim Wonder has got lined up. You know Tim, broadcasting history expert and author. He's been on the podcast many a time. So date for the diary, May 22nd, May 23rd, 2022. That's a Sunday and a Monday in rittle. In Essex, where it all began, details are being finalised. Some kind of guided tour by Tim, perhaps, maybe a bit of food in the local like Peter Eckersley did. And maybe we'll have a separate BB Century meetup as well, if possible, around then. Put it in the diary. May 22nd, 23rd, 2022. More info when we have it. But go back exactly 100 years from that potential May 23rd meetup. Where would we find ourselves? May 23rd, 1922. Now, that is not where our main story is in this podcast chronology. We're in December of that year. But friend of the show, radio historian Alan Stafford, has found something unusual linked to May 23rd, 1922. So we're going to flash back to then briefly. That was the publication date of a certain piece of music that Alan has just unearthed, possibly the first song about radio. Now, we've no idea if this was ever broadcast on the BBC, but Alan recently bought this sheet music. It's a song called Everybody's Listening In, subtitled The Original Wireless Song Foxtrot. Words and music by Ernest Longstaff, who Alan says seems to have had quite a career at the BBC as a composer and a producer and a presenter. So when this song was published in May 1922, the London 2LO radio station was just two weeks old, the wilder 2MT Rittle was three months old, and the British broadcasting boom was exploding. Almost everybody was indeed listening in. They just didn't quite know that there would be a BBC yet. Ladies and gentlemen, recorded Summer 2021, published May 23rd, 1922, Alan Stafford at the piano plays Ernest Longstaff's Everybody's Listening In.
3: Have you heard about the latest toy on sale? It's in the mail Daily mail Just like a fairy tale In the suburbs There'll be perfect peace again No pianos loudly strumming Or people humming The reason's very plain Everybody's listening Sitting at home and listening Everybody's listening in Pick them up as they go To and fro, to and fro Messages from across the sea Liverpool, London or Paris Any old news they think they'd like to know Mother and father think it grand Uncle, auntie take a hand quarrelling who can first begin For a seaside trip Nobody saves up all they do Pick the wireless waves up Everybody's listening See how the eyes are glistening Everybody's crazy on the game of listening in It's a little wooden box With wires and springs And bits and things That just like magic Every sort of news that one could wish to know From sermons for the sinners to Derby winners Today it's all the go Everybody's listening, sitting at home and listening Everybody's listening in Pick them up as they go To and fro, to and fro Messages from across the sea Liverpool, London or Paris Any old news they think they'd like to know In election time it's clear Members will get the public here. First in the field is bound to win They'll broadcast their speeches in the new style Promise anything for in the meanwhile Everybody's listening See how their eyes are glistening Everybody's crazy on the game of listening in.
0: Listen back to those lyrics. Every part of early radio was there, from the type of shows you'd hear, news, entertainment, with the technical aspects and how it works. Amazing. They packed all that into possibly the first song about wireless. Alan Stafford there. His books, It's Friday, It's Crackerjack, and Wilson, Keppel, and Betty, Too Naked for the Nazis, are out now. No word yet on a Christmas CD, but watch this space. Speaking of Christmas, to December 1922, then, for our main story of the week how do we pay for broadcasting? It's a century-old problem. Obviously, the BBC model is still being discussed and dissected nearly 100 years on, but that license fee, the problems came in pretty early, like somewhere between John Reith getting his job running the BBC and John Reith starting that job running the BBC. The last couple of episodes, we've had John Reith, Arthur Burroughs and Cecil Lewis being given their jobs at the BBC. They've not started yet in our current story, But last episode, we said how they met up to scout for premises before they'd even accepted their jobs. There was a fourth employee of the BBC at this stage, Major Anderson, appointed as secretary. Now, you might notice he wasn't there for the premises hunt, so he hadn't met the other staff yet in late December 1922, but he was chatting with the Broadcasting Committee. Now, this committee consisted of the bosses of the wireless firms who wanted broadcasting originally. They wanted to sell their radio sets. Here, John Reith explains who this committee was, those who set things up, we gave him the job and now stayed on as board members.
2: The manufacturers appointed a committee which brought about the formation of the BBC. The BBC was owned by the trade and all the directors except the chairman were from wireless firms.
0: Thursday December the 21st, they have a board meeting at Magnet House. That's the building that General Electric will allow the BBC to use temporarily from New Year onwards. This is the Broadcasting Committee's first meeting since the BBC was registered as a company just the Friday before. It's also the first meeting since Reith and co have been hired. So I'm guessing it would have been a relief for this Broadcasting Committee. These bosses of wireless firms could now hand over the mantle to a full-time staff. They could cling on as directors of the BBC board, they could meet up now and then for sherry and accounts, but their hard work has been done. So at this meeting, Sir William Noble, he was the chairman of the old Broadcasting Committee, he hands over the reins to Lord Gainford, who is confirmed as chairman of the new BBC.
1: The manufacturers of wireless apparatus met together by invitation of the post office, as it was realised that broadcasting would have to be controlled by one broadcasting authority if the chaos which today is so obvious in America were to be avoided here.
0: For the first four years until the BBC becomes a corporation, Lord Gainford will help steer the ship, or at least shout directions from the harbour, while Reith and Burroughs do the actual steering.
1: We are not going to stop broadcasting. Broadcasting has come to stay.
0: This board meeting is a handover of sorts then. The appointments and salaries of Reith, Burroughs, Lewis and Anderson, who were all hired in the last episode of this podcast, they're all confirmed and none of them are actually at the meeting, of course. Reith has headed to Scotland for a week for Christmas and to ask his old friends what broadcasting actually is. But Major Anderson, the new secretary who's not met Reith or any of the staff yet, he has travelled to London specially not to be at the board meeting, but to meet up after the meeting with the chap he's taking over from george pells who's been secretary of the broadcasting committee until now major anderson has been made secretary of this new bbc so they have a lovely lunch the old secretary george pells tells the new secretary major anderson all about the board meeting and he gives him a ton of handover paperwork anderson tells george pells of his new home address in harleston he's just set up home there they can send future bbc correspondence to him there but i think it's here at this lunchtime meeting that Magnet House is confirmed as the BBC's new temporary premises. Old secretary George Pells tells new secretary Major Anderson that he and Reith and Burrows can use that one room as a guest of Magnet House for the time being. Here's engineer Harold Bishop.
1: And of course at that time the offices of the BBC consisted of a few rooms placed at uh, the disposal, uh,
2: disposal by the General Electric Company in Magnet House Kingsway.
0: Like an Amish schoolhouse, it'll be a one-room BBC for the first four months of 1923. The next day, December 22nd, 22. That's two two one two two two. Yes, another sound test. Major Anderson, the secretary, receives more paperwork from the outgoing Broadcasting Committee. He hires a typist for the night and dictates the first official BBC letters and expense claims. The very first was for five pounds, four shillings, and ninepence. thanks to Brian Hennessy's book, The Emergence of Broadcasting in Britain, for these juicy details. Now, 5 pounds shillings, and ninepence isn't much, but throw in the cost of an orchestra and a news bulletin. All of that's going to come in on December the 23rd. And the cost of building five new stations around the country. The staff, the investment, the expansion, it's all to be paid for by this licence fee and a small cut of each wireless set that is sold, stamped type approved by the Postmaster General. But one thing not spoken about at that board meeting, although it would be soon enough, was that by late December 1922, not enough money was coming in to fund this BBC. Here's one of those board directors, Basil Binion, on how the BBC was paid for.
2: We were not allowed to advertise. Our funds came from three sources. The share capital subscribed by the members of the company. Royalties on the sale of wireless sets and components and a share of the license fee. Any member of the public who had a receiving set had to pay a license fee of 10 shillings a year. Well, it was a fine idea, but it didn't work.
0: Peter Eckersley fills us in on some of the backstory in one of his entertaining lectures.
2: In those days, in the early days of broadcasting, no one was in law allowed to listen unless they bought a set to listen with. Stamped type approved by Postmaster General. However, a very large number of people soon found that if they just stuck up an aerial, well, a piece of damp string in the backyard with a knife pressing on a piece of coal and a pair of borrowed earphones, they heard quite well. And that was not a type approved by Postmaster General. <laughs> but people said, well, if they hang to that, this has cost me fourpence and these other things has cost me five pounds.
0: Any of the board directors with a keen eye on the details, like Sir William Noble, the outgoing chairman, have been gradually aware of this shortfall in income. Noble spotted that the problem was with experimental licences. There was misuse in the system. Since July that year, the Postmaster General had made an allowance for amateurs who wanted to make their own receiving sets because, after all, not every radio ham was in the game to listen to the BBC. Some just wanted to tinker with this new wireless toy. But unfortunately, as the BBC launched, foreign radio parts flooded the market more and more listeners realized they could jump on board this whole experimental license thing. They could easily make their own radio sets and they could dodge the cost of a new type approved set which meant no royalty to the BBC. But how do you spot a wireless experimenter from a chancer? Apparently only one in five licenses it's thought went to a genuine experimenter at the time.
2: The difficulties became acute because of course Far the greater majority of people who wished to listen to these programs built their own sets, crystal sets, and so forth. Whereas the buyers of the things stamped, type approved, were very
0: really small in proportion. Here are some figures then. In the three and a half years from Armistice in 1918 to March of 1922, there were 7,690 experimental licenses issued. But in the six months that followed, from April to October 22, there were 10,371 issued. And then in November-December, another 6,140 were issued, compared with 12,000 standard broadcast licences. And for those sets, the royalties were going to the BBC. These experimenters were dodging the tariff.
2: And the BBC was getting rid of its capital rather quickly. Its revenue was absurdly small.
0: Within a few months, the BBC would claim that up to 200,000 listeners were not paying their way. Do
2: you know that everybody who listens has to have a licence?
0: It's quite a point. There were far too many experimental licences then, given out by a general post office who were a little clueless with the nuances of broadcast funding. This was a government department who were in charge of broadcasting but separate from it. They had no real vested interest in chasing up money from listeners or, more crucially to them, voters. Want to keep them on side, not chase them for cash. So on December the 22nd, 22, as the Secretary Anderson was making that first BBC expenses claim of five four shillings and ninepence, Sir William Noble took his case that day to the General Post Office. He urged Mr F.J. Brown there to refuse almost all experimental licence applications. Except in very special cases, they should refuse all amateur licences and advise the applicants to take out BBC licences. But the Postmaster General, for now, refused to cooperate. Why annoy the electorate? Let the new broadcasting company flounder instead.
2: The attitude of post office and treasury to finance was one of the most sickening features of the early years.
0: Reith was not fully aware yet. He was in Scotland, not knowing his amps from his ether. Reith learnt soon enough. Quickly, he would know more than anyone on the BBC's tricky battle with money. Our guest from last episode, Professor Gabriel Balby, tells us a little more of the options for funding broadcasting. A century on, have we found a perfect solution to this numbers game?
1: Someone calls it broadcasting failure, because after more than 100 years, we haven't found a perfect model to finance broadcasting. Uh, Marconi Company had in mind to sell equipments, which is not sustainable in the long run. Then there is advertising, but as we know, uh, people do not like so much advertising. And uh, there is also the, the public service broadcasting, which should not have so much advertising in it or zero, like the BBC decided at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we could uh, make people pay for, for this service uh, through fees, for example, that's another model or uh, like, uh, I don't know, the, the, the sky model, which is more having a, a kind of, uh, Um, self-volunteer fee again. Uh, But in this case, it's not a kind of national tax, but it's more people that would like to receive exclusive content pay on demand, for example, or pay a kind of monthly rate. Those are the four main models, and we are still there today, right?
0: Yeah. Not, Not made a lot of progress in 100 years, maybe. Still arguing about it. So given these options of financing broadcasting, Let's meet a guest who's worked across both BBC and commercial radio. In fact, she was there for the start of it. LBC and Capital started in 1973. And who was there? Well, the now Reverend Cindy Kent in her pre-priest days. She joined us a few episodes ago, and she joins us again now.
4: I was so fortunate to be in at the birth of commercial radio which was fantastic so my first association with that was LBC in London where a guy called Nick Page uh, who uh, excellent broadcaster who also went on to produce to present programmes on Radio 2 um, and I co-presented a programme called Sunday Supplement, which ran for about three hours and none of us got paid it was all volunteer work but we trained some people who then went on to be the great and the good people like Julia Bicknell is a name you might know David Loyne who went on to be the BBC's whatever I can remember sitting he was sitting at my kitchen table and I, I said get it off the paper you know get the words off the paper make it live you know I could, uh, so that was great then I went up to Radio Hallam in Sheffield to do my own radio three-hour program every night which was great fun then I came back down to London and worked for Capital Radio I was their religious affairs producer And then in at the birth of a premier, the guy took me out to lunch and said, you know, what would you like to do? What show would you like? "Okay, right, fine. So ended up doing a daily show and I was with them for goodness knows how many years. In fact, I only left when I took on the church full time, which was 10 years ago. Still gone back and done odd things for them as well because, you know, I'm a great, great fan of the station and uh, it's like my baby, you know, you of feel sort of part of it. So, yeah, I've been there and done that and I've probably got all the (laughs) t-shirts.
0: Sounds like it, it sounds like it. (laughs) Uh, Fascinating as well that, you know, you've done the music thing and then uh, firmly gone towards broadcasting and in many different ways. Uh, And again, one of the characters we uncovered here, a guy called Rex Palmer, who was a a sort of a pop star, if you can call it that, in the 1920s, who was one of the first to demonstrate this is what radio can do. And he was singing his songs. And and then very quickly, he just fell in love with broadcasting. And he thought, forget the music. I'm going to present and then produce and end up running the London radio station in the 20s. We'll have more about Rex Palmer in a couple of episodes time. He'll join the BBC in January 1923. So, you know, pop music got him into it. Uh, and yet suddenly discovered what you can do with broadcasting oh
4: I mean I totally go along with that I, i'm I'm a huge fan of, of radio and I mean you know there are so many times on premier when I was doing shows that you really felt you were in people's lives and you know i mean you don't need pictures do you and the pictures are better on radio as some mm. precocious child once said and I think that's absolutely true I mean I got 9 eleven. Uh, I got the Queen Mother's death, I got Diana's death, you know, I, in fact, they were worried a Premier when I came in through the doors as to what was going to happen, because every <laughs> time I went in, there seemed to be some disaster. But it was, it, it, again, you know, to get the emails afterwards from people saying, oh, you know, thank you for, for just bringing all of that in, into my ears, as it were. I also, over the years, have trained people in, the, in radio, you know, one of the things you say, and you know this as well as I do, is it's one person listening that's the beauty of radio isn't it it's not you all out there it's you most of us listen on our own don't we and so you know the the, the, the knack if you will and terry wogan had it in spades didn't he? he was brilliant you know he was talking to me and i know you probably think he was talking to you but i'm sorry paul he wasn't he was talking to me and i i felt that whenever i listened to him you know and and so, so few broadcasters these days seem to have that intimate knack of talking to me and I feel Ken Bruce is is probably the one around at the moment that's got it mostly I would say. But it is it's such a privilege as well, isn't it? It's not a pulpit. You can't Mm. you know preach. Uh, ooh, lots of peas there um you know it, it, it's a privilege to be in somebody's ears and and talking to them and taking them by the hand and leading them somewhere and that's the, the great i mean I, i'm just as you can tell <laughs> i'm a yeah. huge fan of radio <laughs>
0: well what wogan's uh a farewell speech I, i've read a few times uh, and heard a few times and then you read, read it back it's golden isn't it yeah you know, thank you for being my friend i mean it's just perfect
4: it? he was saying that to me literally mm. was saying it. i know he was <laughs> <laughs> well no he's i mean he had that nap didn't he where everybody you know felt that he was you were his friend we were one of togs or whatever it was you know we were all of those things weren't we?
0: back in december 1922 even the wireless club who represented the interest of radio amateurs Even they wanted the experimental licence upped to a pound because they could see the dangers ahead for broadcasting. They were happy to have their members pay more to safeguard its future. But nope, regarding the licence fee problems, the Postmaster General wasn't budging, at least until the new year. In smaller respects, though, the government were playing ball and helping out the broadcasters. Until late December that year, three minutes out of every ten had to fall silent on air for broadcasters to listen out for government messages telling them to stop broadcasting. But no message had ever come, so finally the broadcasters were allowed to dispense with those horrible little intervals, as Arthur Burrows called them. Marconi House wasn't the only place sending out entertainment for your ears, of course. There were other stations too. Touch that dial and you could listen for much longer. Let me tell you of a non-stop seven-hour concert. So said a writer for Popular Wireless magazine. Tuning in for a full evening of radio. The fun started at 5.15 with FL, the Paris station, booming through as though he was in the same room. Weather report first, as usual, then an excellent musical programme, vocal and orchestral, mostly the very best modern stuff. FL ended at 5.50 with his customary Bonsoir, mesdames, bonsoir, monsieur. Ten minutes interval to adjust the high tension connection, which showed a disposition to crackle. At 6 p.m., to the minute, 2LO's chimes announced that he was on the spot. Only the first news bulletin from him, but the promise of a concert later. 6.15, Manchester, 2ZY, in full song. More good music until an entertainer with some sort of a recitation came on. I couldn't get him very well. Manchester is 200 miles away, so went fishing. In other words, trying other stations. Surprised an amateur announcing that he was coming on at 11pm with music. Our old friend 2OM this was. Of course, individual radio hams, as well as fully funded companies like the BBC, had similar call signs all the same. Are we going to get to bed at all tonight? Birmingham, 5IT, was going strong at 7 o'clock. Transmission excellent, but still that hollow sound, as though the room from which the speech and music comes was absolutely bare. London again at 8 o'clock, very good indeed, and punctual. Violin and piano and some excellent contralto and tenor songs from London. At 8.45 we decide that London may be very good, but it isn't the only pebble on the beach. What about that new French station on 1500? This will be Radio Electrique in Paris with nightly concerts at 9.45pm. Yes, the Radiola people were there and no interference at all. Instrumental music to start with, then some songs and an excellent cello solo. More orchestral work, Radiola ended at 5 past 10 and it was curious to hear FL's time signals butting in on the last item. Again, that's FL in Paris. Though he is 1,000 metres higher up on the wavelength scale. (laughs) So plenty of choice then for the listener in December 1922. Various BBC and non-BBC stations to hear, though the latter were from the continent. In time on this podcast, we will get to the pirate stations. Radio Luxembourg, Radio Normandy, Leonard Plug, what a tale that is. Now, Cindy Kent, though, has worked across many a radio station, BBC and commercial. Don't think she's done pirate yet. And she told me the standout moments for her, though, were dealing with those on-air announcements of celebrity demises
4: the big deaths you know which are like mm. you know you're live and you've got to cope and you know that's when you can't you, you can't learn those kind of things somehow adrenaline gives you the instinct and gives you the the wisdom to, to know what to do because if you'd say oh i the first time it happened was when i was radio hallam doing this late night show and um i i was on from 10 until one in 10 at night to one in the morning and the newsreader came in at 10 uh to do the news and then he he went and uh just before 10 o'clock he sort of said to me oh we're just getting reports that Elvis has died really and there were lots of jokes at the time about it so it was like oh really um well and then he found out it was true so I said right look do not make the announcement yet I ran down to the record library because in those days you played actual records Mm -hmm. in the studio. Well, that takes you back. Uh, (laughs) And you had to make sure you were on 33 or not 45, I mean, that that was a nightmare in itself. And I grabbed almost every Elvis album I could think of, opened the Guinness Book of of Records and just took us through his life story uh, throughout the next three hours. And now if you'd said to me in advance, what would you do if suddenly you're confronted with this this massive thing in broadcast, I wouldn't have known what to do, but somehow or other there was an instinct. who was the wonderful boss of Radio Hallam and a tremendous broadcaster, was driving around the town when he heard the news and he thought, oh, i better go into the studio and then stopped and listened to what I was doing. I thought, no, it seems to be okay. That's what I would have done no greater praise in my book but it's little things like that where you you know you wouldn't know diana's death all the other things i don't know what i'd do i wouldn't sit down and write out i would talk to this person Mm. but i I mean diana's death you're talking to people all around the world to get comments you know and 9 11 you're finding out people's views on what's going on and how they feel and it was a privilege really in many ways to be part of those big events 9 11 when a woman in america was listening to me in London on her computer I suppose to the events that were happening and I got an email from her the next day saying thank you so much um, I couldn't pray I, I was just so angry with God at what had happened that it was lovely that you asked people to pray and all I had to do was say amen and I thought you know that that kind of meant so much that you just felt you were there for that woman at that time and even if nobody else appreciated what you had done that one woman did and that was brilliant so yeah it's a great medium
1: for more of Cindy Kent go back to episode 19 where she told us of being there when Radio 1 started one of the first songs Tony Blackburn played
0: was hers broadcaster turned priest turned broadcasting priest father settlers and my word what a career reverend Cindy Kent thank you next time the return of the AMs and the FMs you may record an AM is an airwave memory that you may write and email to me paul at paulcarenza.com on the magic of broadcasting While an FM is a first-hand memory, you record a voice memo, you email me at paul at paulcarenza.com, and it could be you next time on the podcast. Also next time, we're back with the broadcasters. Even though Reith hasn't started work yet in our story, the broadcasting continues from Marconi House in the week before Christmas 1922, and that includes the first couple of British broadcasting, Stanton Jeffries and Vivienne Chatterton. Aww. Let's have a last word from Cindy Kent, priest, pop star, broadcaster, but also viewer and listener. What has got her through the last year and a bit?
4: I found it's comfort watching as opposed to comfort eating. and I've recorded all these brand new programmes, awesome. I won't mention a whole list of them, you know, I think I'll record them all and they're all sitting there on my machine. And when I've got a downtime time to sit and watch something... I really don't want to tackle something
0: new. We watched a lot of Poirot over the last... ITV3 is our most watched channel of the year in this house because it's just great and comforting, you know.
4: You have taken the words out of my mouth. I watched Poirot last night. Actually, watched a Poirot last night, and th- and you know, you come to the end, you press the green button, and the next one starts, and it's brilliant. <laughs> and I think, yeah, this is good. I know it's all going to end well, and you know, I think that's what it's all about, isn't it? We we feel comfort in things we know, like putting on an old comfy pair of slippers as opposed to brand new shoes. But also because we know it ends with the goodies winning and the baddies not, and there's something there, isn't there? Well, at least that's my sort of psychology <laughs> exam gone for a better. I suppose but you know it just seems to me that that's what I want in my life is comfort and a little bit of you know I know it's all going to work out and yeah.
0: Ah comfort watching comfort listening well thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast do share do review you can join us on Patreon if you'd really like to support us or coffee.com, that's ko-fi.com if you prefer but on Patreon we're currently reading Cecil Lewis's Broadcasting from Within I'm doing it a sort of half chapter at a time so patreon.com slash Carenza supports the show and gets you extra things like that. Stay subscribed. We'll see you next time for Marconi House, December 1922. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. The original music is composed by Will Farmer. Archive clips are either public domain, being over 50 years old, Or someone else's domain, possibly the BBC's, used with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights reserved. Oh, yes, they are. Stay informed, educated and entertained. Join us next time for Marconi House, Christmas 1922. Even if it's summer, it doesn't matter. On the British Broadcasting Century.